0: A star cast of thousands, a promising young director, a writer at the end of his tether, all ready to produce their masterpiece. Episode 84 of The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Bring on my leading lady. Hello and welcome after that auspicious uh, intro to this week's Film File. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Meakin. And welcome to the film show for Film Geeks by Film Geeks. Andy, it seems like mere minutes since I spoke to you last.
1: <laughs> it's, it's so strange how fast time flies. It yeah, it, it feels like I've spoken to you so much this week as well. <laughs>
0: I know. I've just got back from London and I'm about to go off uh, on my jollies again to go and see a friend of mine who lives um, in South Wales. And he was a, a, a music video concept uh, writer. He wrote the scripts for a lot of the music videos that, that really were the, were the introduction to music videos. So he did Ghostbusters and he did uh, a Video Kill the Radio Star and all those classic, classic uh, music videos. So I'm, I'm off down to South Wales in a couple of days to spend a few days down with a friend of mine. I've not seen him for a few years and especially not seen him due to covid and it has been. I think 2018 was the last time I saw him. So looking forward to that. Just got back from London. We are going to be talking in our deep dive later about Young Frankenstein. And the last time I was in London for pleasure, not for work, I went to see the musical version of Young Frankenstein. So there's a link. I'm getting there. <laughs> but I did notice. I, I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, a musical version of Back to the Future that's that's doing the rounds at the moment, treading the boards yeah. in 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 the West End. I. You know what I think they're a cheap shot a lot yes. of these uh, these uh, these musicals based on famous movies um instead of finding i guess it's the same as it's the same as film but not finding original ip
1: yeah i i've had one of my one of my friends is a huge fan of back to the future and i love the film to bits you know well, we, talked about it, we, yeah. we spoke about it a few episodes ago it's my favorite film of the 80s but he, he, when they said that the musical was coming, he was like, Oh, should we go and see it? And my instant reaction was, No, I don't get it. I, you saw the same with Lord of the Rings, the musical. I'm a huge Tolkien fan, but I've got no interest in seeing a musical no. version of Lord of the Rings. I, like you say, it's a cheap use of IP to just sell something that you could do substandard music for. And a lot of the times, the music is substandard. Yeah. But they know that people will flock to it just out of, well, it's what I always harp on about, nostalgia factor. Yeah, that's yeah. what draws them in. They are not good musicals. They are not fresh. They are not original. Occasionally, one comes along that's a bit, a bit better than what it should be. Uh, one of which you know ties in again to Young Frankenstein, another Mel Brooks one, The Producers. But yes. The Producers was ironically about a stage musical that was the worst musical ever. So it made sense to make a bad musical out of a film about a bad musical
0: i only saw the film adaptation i never saw the stage version i mean every, every other sort of theater was based on a movie or based on yeah. uh, a tv series there was an only fools and horses i just kind of think they are yeah. are just cheap shots that trying to draw the public in now uh, we, we talk about movies every week and we know that movies are nowadays based on existing IP, so we can't be that much of a cheap shot. I just think that you know have have stage writers run out of ideas. Is that where they've got to? They've got to plunder now, um, rather than coming up with original and new musicals.
1: I think that I think that's why it's great. Why you've still got you've got people like Lynn Manuel Miranda who's still coming up with original stories to tell in a musical format, and proving that you don't need to tap into already known material. In order yeah. to deliver something.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, that's as uh, now kicked off the theatre. Uh, <laughs> <guess this.
1: laughs> so if you want to get in touch with us about our theatre <laughs> ideas, uh, podcast at filmfile.uk. Um, I mean, on a completely tangential subject, my, my week ahead of me is currently lined up to be digging through the trash on Amazon, as I like to refer to it. Right. Uh, I've lined up a load of Z-list horrors. You know, you know the likes of the things like Sharktopus and Five Headed Shark Attack and Sharknado kind of films. Does Amazon is a wealth of these kind of films. I, I, I can, I can. I'm going to declare my love for these nonsense films. A lot I of them are.
0: <laughs> really don't like Z-level movies. No.
1: <laughs> oh, I, I've got a lot of. As long as they know how stupid they are, and play to that, I'm fine to just sit back and chill out. I've seen in recent weeks films such as Larmageddon, which um, has a llama shooting laser beans from its eyes and attacking a house party. And it's the cheapest looking film that I've ever seen, but I had a riot watching it. I'm hoping they do a sequel called Alpacalypse now.
0: (laughs) Well, they should now. And you need, hey, listen, guys, if you are the producers of of, uh, Larmageddon, you heard it here first. We've got, we've got lawyers. They're not very particularly big <laughs> lawyers. But we, we've got lawyers. So if it happens, Andy Meakin needs a, a credit for that one.
1: There's Carnihail, which is a film about a carnival horse that goes on a rampage at a party. It's always at a party. And there's Killer Sofa. Now, Killer Sofa is an utter treat because it's about a possessed sofa that grows a fondness, g- g- grows a fondness to its new owner and gets very jealously possessive of the new owner, and starts killing anyone who gets in close contact with her. And it's got some genuinely, hilariously weird moments, such as the sofa staring at people out the window. Brilliant stuff. Uh, But I've got lined up films like Clownado, which is like uh, Sharknado, except it's a tornado filled with clowns.
0: (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) I mean, I know that these are low bad. Yeah, that I know. know I mean, I know the low quality. You're an intelligent,
0: some, creative person, Andy. I, I would be more about, concerned if you didn't.
1: <laughs> there's something about the cheap nastiness of these kind of films, usually with OTT blood and effects, that I find inherently charming. And usually they're put together by people who are trying to get a start within filmmaking, and they're using it to test the waters and test out their styles. And I've got a lot of respect for that. I'm always up for indie people going in for it, um, which... Bizarrely, actually ties into one of the reviews that I'm going to do later, which is a film four title named Sensor, which is set around the time of Video Nasties in the 80s. And that's what got me thinking I want to watch some modern day Video Nasties this week. Cause...
0: It's really interesting you're saying that because I didn't know. I mean, just just to, I'm going to be away for the, the program's going to be a bit weird today. I'm not going to be involved in all the show. Uh, but I was just reading about about Sensor um, before we started, before we, uh, we started recording. And I was thinking, that looks interesting. I remember that uh, as, a, as a period of history. And um, I remember the build-up to it, and I remember the sort of it happening. So, yeah, that, that, uh, that already struck a chord for me as being a film that I wanted to see. Is that available? Can you tell me now before I... Uh...
1: It's on limited cinema release
0: this, uh, uh, at this current point in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do fancy that one. Anyway, in today's strangely Frankenstein show, we will be talking about our deep dive of the week, Young Frankenstein, the 1974 Mel Brooks classic. It's almost as old as me. Indeed. Andy will be reviewing...
1: Censor, Snake Eyes, Pig and Reminiscence.
0: Of course, we'll have our usual neat thing and we'll be taking a look at the latest episode of Marvel's new animated series on Disney Plus, What If. But before all that, Andy, and yes, just Andy, will be bringing you the news.
1: So let's start with box office, because it's traditional now. We do this every week. Uh, at some point, the box office will be stable enough that we don't feel that we need to reanalyse it every week. But it's still very much up in the air. And there's a lot of analysis that has to be done. So free guy, which is on its second release worldwide, retained its place at the top of the US box office this week. As we mentioned in previous shows, the drop-off on box office recently has been a large 60 to 70%, with streaming options being blamed by many analysts for the huge drop-off. Well, the Ryan Reynolds-led film only got hit with a 34% drop-off, which kind of backs up the debate over whether streaming hurts box office, as it clearly ran strong week on week because there's no streaming option there. So when someone says, wow, you need to see this film, and gives the good word of mouth, people can't just go home and watch it on TV. They have to go to the cinema. With a total worldwide box office of almost £112 so far, Free Guy is well and truly on the way to profit. And this is before it lands on Disney Plus in late September, early October Still a good few weeks to go of it at the box office, but this shows that people do want to return to cinemas and it gives a very positive message and a lot of hope for films coming up, such as Shang-Chi, which tickets are on sale now. It's only two weeks away and Bond, which tickets will be going on sale soon and is definitely going to be coming to cinemas. Um, in part of its strike back at Scarlett Johansson over a contract dispute, Disney have revealed some additional figures for the performance of Black Widow. Now, whilst the worldwide box office is readily available and it stands at over $367 million, it's the reveal of the home revenue of $125 million that casts a slightly new perspective on the way streaming premium is consumed. They revealed that on opening weekend, it scored $60 million. So after a month on premium, it's basically doubled that figure, which highlights how top-heavy the home market is and how, for films that cost £200 million or more to make, such as Black Widow, and need three times that to break even due to marketing costs, distribution, etc., streaming cannot generate the level required. As much as people might try to say that everything will be day and date going forwards, if it is, it will mean the budgets for films will have to be significantly reduced or subscriptions for these services will have to be significantly increased. And this is something me and Leah have spoken about before, is there's too many subscription services out there that people will be forced to drop one or two of them. And that will then push people to move towards more unofficial channels, shall we say, for downloading and streaming their content, which is not what the industry wants, because it gets no money. It's getting more and more clear how important the box office for even a limited two or three weeks is going to be in order for the industry to keep going the way it's going. There will be changes within the industry. We already know that the 90-day window has now dropped to 45-day window going forwards. That's one of the changes. But there'll be a lot of changes behind the scenes on how films are financed and how how stars, directors and cast are paid. Because that's where the huge chunk of the budget is going. And if they're going to have to cut back somewhere, that's where it's going to be. The great Lord Feige, he of Marvel, has been speaking about the future MCU projects whilst out doing promo for Shang-Chi, which, like I said, is only a matter of weeks away. Loki season two development is well underway and they hope to keep as much of the same creative forces who worked on the first season. Although it's already been confirmed that director Kate Heron has moved on. Production isn't planned to start until well into 2022 or possibly 2023 because there's so many other shows that are already in the works. When asked about the next Avengers film, Feige said, I think we want there to be a reasonable amount of time from Avengers Endgame to start a new saga, which is already underway and already started. And then you need time, as you did in phase one, to build that saga before you start bringing everyone together. I mean, it's important to note that this current phase has a lot of new characters. You can't just suddenly crash these straight together in a big team up. They need to slowly develop them. And yes, they've got the Disney Plus TV shows in order to flesh out the characters more and more. But even though they're directly linked in to the films, Figi has said in the past that it won't be necessary to have watched the shows to understand the films. So they can't just straight away introduce Ms. Marvel on her TV series and then expect film-going audiences to understand who she is. That's why she's getting introduced to the film audience via next year's The Marvels. So they've got to take the time. They've got to build up. So it's going to be maybe four years before we see a big team-up. Could it be The Fantastic Four is the team-up? Who knows? In other Marvel news, Heart is set to debut in Wakanda Forever. Dominique Thorne will play Riri Williams in Ryan Coogler's currently shooting follow-up to Black Panther. The character is a teenage engineering genius who reverse-engineers an Iron Man suit in order to build her own version. A Disney Plus series is already in the pipeline, but the character will make her debut on the big screen instead. Anthony Mackie has closed a deal for the next Captain America film. He took the mantle up in Falcon and Winter Soldier, our series on Disney, and if you've not watched the series on Disney, again, you've already got that gist at the end of Endgame when he was handed the shield that that's when it was leading. So you're not really missing st- see how they're, they're making it so you can watch just the films? It's clever. This figure is clever. And he will continue the role into the movies following in Steve's footsteps. Malcolm Spellman and Dallin Musson are scripting why Carrie Scogland is going to direct. And also on... More Marvel news. And this is something that people have been clamoring for for a while. News on the third Deadpool movie. Now, there were rumors. There was speculation. Ryan Reynolds had said that, yes, it will happen. But there was no other reports coming out. And people were like, well, is that just wishful thinking on Ryan's part? Well, it's now been confirmed by Feige himself that the third Deadpool movie is definitely in the works. Ryan Reynolds is working hard on it right now with the writing team. And they're hoping for it to go into production imminently is as close as they'll say imminence could be anything it could be in the next year it could be the next two years but it is in the pipeline they have not abandoned it now a film that's more more than in the pipeline and people have been clamoring for details on is spider-man no way home and it's been we've been we've commented on a few episodes over the past month or so that surely there's got to be a trailer coming Well, this week, a trailer was leaked. Because there's a CinemaCon going on, obviously there was footage that was recorded dodgily and people started watching it. I refuse to watch that because I'm not going to sully my experience of enjoying a trailer by watching a shaky handheld phone recording of it. Well, in what was likely a reaction to that leak, Sony dropped the full version officially. I still maintain that they intended to... Release the full version of the trailer tagged onto the front of Shang-Chi in two weeks' time. But this leak has forced their hands to drop it early. So check online, find it, and get it watched because it's quite a stunning trailer. The trailer teases a lot and it looks to be a packed adventure. Doctor Strange is trying to wipe the reveal of Peter Parker as Spidey because it's causing Spider-Man complications. We're getting echoes of the comic book story arc set just after Civil War, after Spidey had revealed his identity to the world. But Doctor Strange tries to wipe the reveal and in doing so accidentally creates a dimensional rift. Some folk online are pretty certain that Doctor Strange would never do that and clearly they don't know comics because Doctor Strange would do that and indeed he did. Yes, those people who don't know the comics in detail will just say, no it wasn't, it was Mephisto who changed history in the past. They clearly didn't read Either that any of the comics or any of the comics that came afterwards, because it was revealed later on in the Spider Man titles with flashbacks that Doctor Strange and Reed Richards were heavily involved in crafting a spell to be able to erase the damage. So, yes, Doctor Strange would do something so risky and dangerous. And so, why wouldn't he do exactly the same in the MCU? It looks great. It looks exciting. It looks vibrant. I'm hoping it sticks the landing. I'm hoping it doesn't pack too much in and become a bit too much of a complicated mess because there's a lot to dissect in that trailer. And on the last bit of Disney news, Disney Plus have announced a 10-part retelling of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea for their service, which is going to be called Nautilus, named after the famous submarine of Captain Nemo's. The series plans to serve as an origin tale for Captain Nemo and his submarine, seeing an Indian prince held as a prisoner of the East India Company breaking free and setting sail with a ragtag crew on an awe-inspiring submarine, battling foes and discovering mystical underwater kingdoms as he seeks revenge against those who took everything from him. Filming will start in early 2022. Disney previously adapted the Jules Verne classic tale in 1954 with James Mason as Nemo and Kirk Douglas as Nedland. And that film itself holds a special place in the hearts of many people of my generation. Denis Villeneuve is ramping up for the premiere of Dune in Venice before the worldwide release in October, and he's been speaking about plans for future films. If Dune goes well, Villeneuve will move straight on to Dune Part 2, which will adapt the second half of the Frank Herbert book. My only concern on this plan for two films from one book is that Part 1 won't feel complete, but we'll come to that when the film comes out. Plans are to hopefully begin shooting in late 2022. He's also confirmed that he'd like to make a trilogy adapting Dune Messiah for the third film, which was the second book in the series. And whilst he hasn't spoken of adapting book three, Children of Dune, he has noted that just to get as far as Dune Messiah would be years of film work, and then he'll see what happens after that point. He has confirmed that Baron Harkonnen's nephew, Fade, played by Sting in the Lynch version, won't turn up in Dune part one. And Villeneuve was a fan of the design in Lynch's film. It was a powerful image, that jockstrap, he commented in an interview. He's also optimistic about the film, Saying, everybody at Warner Brothers and Legendary, they are 100% behind the project. They feel it would re- it would need a really bad outcome at the box office to not have a Dune part 2 because they love the movie. They are proud of the movie, so they want the movie to move forward. And they still did half of it. So, you know, I'm very optimistic. Now, this suggests that if the film underperforms, Warner Brothers may still move ahead with future films, taking note of the world environment as a factor as to why it underperforms. If it totally bombs, however, complete box office disaster, that will be a different story. It does look like Warners don't want to lose Villeneuve. They've clearly lost Nolan. They don't want to lose Villeneuve, who brings a similar kind of vision and a similar kind of aesthetic to his films. Even though Villeneuve has been very outspoken about the move to HBO Max for the film, it's clear that they're still very supportive of him as a director and his passion and his project. So, fingers crossed, we'll at least get to see June Part 2 go into production. There's still news of films going to day and date streaming. Animated sequel, Adam's Family 2, is the latest film to move to day and date theatrical and streaming release. The film will launch on October the 1st, and the shift is cited to be due to many cinemas insisting on vax cards for entry due to the rising Delta variant, combined with the fact that kids are still unvaccinated for COVID-19. This gives families the option to stay at home and follows last year's Bill and Ted Face the Music that made a profit as a result. Now, the difference between these films and, say, Shang-Chi, Bond and Dune is budget. Those three films cost much more than films such as Adam's Family 2 and so need the type of revenue, like I said at the head of the news, that is generated by cinema box office before going to streaming. Lower budgeted fare can thrive on streaming as the revenues are much less. So if you're one of those who harp on about streaming being in the future without knowing the financials, there it is in simple terms. If a film costs less than £100 million to make, it can thrive on home release. If you want the future to be everything goes to streaming on day one, be ready to not see large blockbusters again or expect a hike in the price of the streaming rentals. DC News and a Black Canary film is in the pipeline. Spinning off from Birds of Prey, Misha Green, who crafted Lovecraft Country for the TV, is currently developing the film for HBO Max. Jernay Smollett will reprise her role as Dinah Lance or Black Canary. And Smollett previously worked with Green on Lovecraft Country, where she played a lead role. The character, for those who didn't see Birds of Prey, has a metahuman ability of supersonic level screaming. The project is still in the early stages, and Green is also busy developing several other projects, including JLo action thriller The Mother and the Tomb Raider sequel. So when it'll actually go into full production is a little uncertain, but at least it's on the way and at least it shows that the DC have a commitment to fleshing out the DCEU with some of the lesser characters. We already know that there's a Blue Beetle series in production and this will be spinning off in Birds of Prey. Birds of Prey was seen by many as being a bit of a flop and it was unlikely that anything would spin off from it. But I'm so glad that they are keeping the casting and they are taking the characters in other directions. Maybe we'll get to see some of the others come back into the fold. Brief news about Wes Anderson's next film, which we've mentioned multiple times that we know nothing about except for the casting. And over this past week, more names have been added to the cast list, including Brian Cranston, Hope Davies, Jeffrey Wright and Liev Schreiber. Basically, at this point in time, I'm expecting everyone in Hollywood to start working with Wes Anderson on his next film. Fast and Furious 10, or as I'm calling it, Fior 10 Us, or Fast 10 Your Seatbelts, will open on April 7th, 2023. The currently penultimate chapter, and I say currently because I'm pretty sure on the seventh film, they said that the ninth film would be the last. And then on the eighth film, they said uh, the 10th film would be the last. But then when they've made the ninth one, they said that there's going to be an 11th film. So I, I, they're going to keep doing these. They're going to keep going. As long as you keep going and paying your box office, they're going to keep making them. Anyway, this currently penultimate chapter will be directed by Justin Lin, who gave us Numbers three, four, five, six, and 9. And obviously regulars Diesel, Tyrese Gibson, Sun Kang, Chris Bridges, Jordana Brewster and Michelle Rodriguez will return. It's uncertain at this point whether John Cena will return, but we do know that The Rock won't be back. He's been very vocal about how he's not returning, but he is going to return for the Hobbs and Shaw sequel. In addition, Fast 9 gets a home release in September with a director's cut which has adds five minutes of extra footage into the already overblown, overbloated film. It's probably a way to bolster the somewhat diminished returns of the box office caused by the global situation right now, even though Fast 9 was one of the best performing films of this year. It still was a far cry from what the previous Fast series films did. And to round off, a biopic about Gene Roddenberry is in the works. Covering his life before and after creating Star Trek, it will cover his surviving two plane crashes and events leading to his death in 1991, just as The Next Generation was becoming the most successful sci-fi show of all time. Roddenberry was a World War II Air Force pilot and then a Pan Am pilot before he joined the LAPD, as well as becoming the guy who created a sci fi show that pushed for diversity and challenged societal issues through celebrated episodes. As a huge fan of Trek, I'm extremely interested in seeing how this pans out. And it's coming from the actual production company that is owned by the Roddenberry family. So, expect it to be a bit, of maybe a bit of a puff piece, but hopefully a detailed and in-depth one that shines a spotlight on part of his life that maybe people weren't aware of. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is my news.
0: Still with us, still enjoying the show? Glad to hear. And if you're a fan of the show and you didn't realise that you could subscribe, then just head over to your favourite podcast platform, and subscribe to the film file. And when you've subscribed, hit that like button because Andy and I are building a secret empire of mutant ants. And your contribution helps us to take over the world. If you want to know more about secret invasion plans and giant ants, then you can also find us on
1: You can sometimes find me on Twitter at @filmfile.u... filmfile. At UK.
0: You're still you're still falling out with Twitter since last week's show.
1: <laughs> it's I, I, it's kind of calmed down over there, but it's no doubt going to flare up at some point. Uh, you can pop over to Instagram and see lovely pictures of us and go, oh, oh, I don't ever want to see that again. Film File UK. Or if you don't like any of our opinions, you can fire an email over for me to ignore. Or I might reply to you, podcast at filmfile.uk.
0: I, I told you this was a crazy episode. So let's delve into probably one of the best comedy horror films ever. I'm going with ever. That is 1974, Melbrook classic, Young Frankenstein. Directed by Brooks, screenplay by Brooks, and his star Gene Wilder, who plays the lead role as the title character, a descendant of the infamous Dr. Victor Frankenstein. And Peter Boyle has his creation. The film also stars Terry Gore, Cloris Leachman, Marty Fellman, Madeleine Kahn, and Gene Hackman. Yes, Gene Hackman. Now, that brain that you gave me, was it Hans Delbrooks?
1: No, ah, good. Uh, would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry abby someone abby someone abby who abby normal abby normal i'm almost
0: sure that was the name (laughs) (laughs) are you saying that i put an abnormal brain
1: into a seven and a half foot long 54-inch wide gorilla. Is that what you're telling
0: me? Quick, quick, give up! What? Three syllables, yes. Mel Brooks considered this to be by far his finest, although not his funniest film as a writer-director. And for me, who have seen it countless times. Every time it's on, I find something new to laugh about. This film is hysterically funny. Brooks was on a roll at this particular point. He'd made The Producers, he'd made Blazing Saddles, along comes Young Frankenstein, and it is almost the perfect triptych of of, of filmmaking. Each one, for me, are, are classics. But for even though I think Blazing Saddles is the funniest film, Young Frankenstein is my favourite film. So, Frederick Frankenstein, yeah, I got that right, is a lecturing physician at American Medical School and engaged to Elizabeth, a socialite. He becomes exasperated to anyone, brings up the the subject of the legend of his grandfather as the infamous mad scientist he was and insists that his name is not pronounced Frankenstein, but Frankenstein. (laughs) And that's the first... Two minutes of gags just there. It is a laugh, uh, not even just a laugh a minute, a laugh every 30 seconds. Gene Wilder was never funnier. Absolutely plays it to the hill. Everybody in this film, Peter Boyle, Terry Garr, everybody is working at their absolute best. This film is, is charming. It's a wonderful recreation of the universal uh, monster movies of, of the 30s. Everything is a note, right? You could almost take out the gags and, and have a sequel to those 1930s classics. I, I just love this film so much. And thinking about it now, I'm just trying to get through all the gags that run throughout this movie. Absolutely makes me cry when I watch it. Andy, do you have the same love for Young Frankenstein?
1: Oh yes, I mean you saying that like you could take away the gags and it could be a perfect sequel. Now I'm not sure. I'm not sure how young I actually was when I first saw this, but I do know that for quite some time I couldn't separate this film from the actual classic Frankenstein in my head. To the point that <laughs> whenever I watched the classic Frankenstein, I was expecting a scene with putting on the ritz being sung and um, tap dance to. It was that perfect. a a parody that Mel Brooks put together. It's an absolute testament to the skill of what Mel Brooks had with comedy during that era. What I do know is that I saw this film for the first time as a result of Mel Brooks films playing on TV. And as I've said before, my dad's favourite comedy is Blazing Saddles, which meant that we were going to tune in for every one of the Mel Brooks films. Marty Feldman and Gene Wilder were instant comic icons to me as a result at very early age. and then. During my teens, I went and rediscovered the film and started to appreciate it for the utterly perfect comic approach it took to the material that it was parody-adapting. Again, during my teens when I watched it, Wilder and Feldman were shining, but now it was the witty lines of snappy repartee that stood out even more to my teenage brain. Lines such as, Werewolf, Their, What? Their wolf, Their castle, Marty Feldman's hump, that keeps moving from left to right to left to right.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing just as you're going through it, Andy, because it's all so good. Uh, I mean, that's the way to talk about this movie, is you can just pinpoint, you know, there's a Frankenstein gag. What wonderful knockers springs to mind? <laughs> I <go. laughs> Stay close to the candles. Frau Blücher. <laughs> everything just hits it's you know when a comedy is great and there are certain comedies that that stay with you because you as soon as you get on a roll you quote them and this is so quotable from the first two minutes of this movie to the close before the credits everything in this movie works there if you if there's a gag you don't get don't worry because there's going to be another one 20 seconds later this is this is Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder working on all cylinders to produce something that is a true homage to those movies, right down to using some of the set pieces from the yes. original Universal Frankenstein movie, as well as as, as having something to say about who, who you are and you, 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 your role in the world. It just works. Nothing in this movie is shooed in. Nothing in this movie is, ah, eh, that was okay, Everything works. Everything is on the nail with every gag, beautiful timing, beautifully shot film. It, it just It's just a joy. And the first time I saw it, I saw it as a double bill to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, so it was a great double bill. I got to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show for the first time and saw Young Frankenstein for the, for the first time. That's and a good I, double bill. It's a great double Bill. But Young Frankenstein, while I've got a, a, a lot of love for Rocky Horror, Young Frankenstein is the film that I will go back to time and time and time again. Absolutely. Makes me laugh just thinking about it.
1: You've mentioned the cast line-up. What a cast. I mean, this film introduced me to the ever-excellent Clovis Leachman, who like, it was an absolute pleasure in a sinister yet comical role. But this was the film that made me fall in love with Madeline Kahn, who was present in a lot of Mel Brooks' films and always was a joy. But I think in this, she absolutely shone throughout. I absolutely adored her as a teenager, and I still do now, looking back on any film with Madeline Kahn in, I just can't help but just be charmed by her. She's just got a quirkiness. She's got a simplicity to her approach. Absolutely brilliant. And this is a film that every time they rewatch it, it gets better and better. Yeah. I... I I still laugh at the same beats, but I sometimes laugh at things that I didn't spot the first time. I love the fact that it it homages the Universal films so perfectly. The black and white look, the set design that you've already mentioned, which is pretty much shot like shot for shot, scene for scene, exactly the same as the classic Frankenstein. Uh, it, it's the japery works so well; it never feels juvenile, it never feels forced. It always feels like it's it's coming from a a heartwarming and natural place. And like I said before, once you get from the start of this film with Frederick Frankenstein stabbing his leg while teaching a class to the back end of the film when there's the hilarity of a tap dancing routine to putting on the Ritz, (laughs) I I just will not tire of this film. This is a film that if you've never seen it and you've been put off because you're one of these weird people who goes, oh, black and white films. Oh, why do they make things in black and white? It needs to be in black and white to actually convey how perfect a parody it is. This is a great film. If you've not watched it, you've missed out immensely. And,
0: and there's so much to watch out for, including Easter eggs. So one of the uh, when the monsters unleashed, one of the authority figures in the local village says that they already know what Frankenstein is up to based on his five previous experiences. This is a reference to the five universal films uh, that, uh, that, that, that were made about Frankenstein. Frankenstein, Bride of. Son of uh, Ghost of Marty Feldman added his own comic twist. Marty Feldman, what a genius performer! He deliberately kept swapping the hump, and that got written into the script. And and Wilder had written the role especially for Feldman. And even the liner Igor's line going "Walk this way, Master" is the <laughs> inspired the song "Walk this way" by Aerosmith. Apparently, I don't know if that's true, but I'd like to think that it actually is. It's, it's, it's a beautiful film. It's beautifully shot. It's, it's a proper movie. And, and you think of some of the gag movies now where they are gag after gag. What this has, apart from heart, is that the gags work because it's not just a, a rambling tick list of, of jokes. Mm. It, it's, it's a well thought out, well crafted, uh, beautifully made movie in its own right with, with love, of, of, of a genre it doesn't it never it, it never throws the the genre uh, under the tracks it's it's a love letter to those movies it's, it's
1: the story came first yeah the story came first and the gags came from the story that's what makes it work is that it like you say it's not just a collection of sketches or just puns it's a story that's funny
0: yeah. and that's young frankenstein andy where can we find it
1: at this present time, it's not available on streaming services. It does pop up on BBC quite frequently. So keep an eye on BBC iPlayer at any point in time. If not, you can go and buy the physical Blu ray out there or rent it or purchase it on all your streaming services.
0: As I mentioned earlier, I'd seen the live stage show, which I'll, I'll just mention very quickly. It's okay because it's, um, it was co written by Brooks, So all the gags are in. I don't know if it was a performance I saw or, or the stage show itself, but it felt. It felt tacky and felt a bit cheap. It was funny, yes. Don't get me wrong, because you know you've got the blueprint of of young Frankenstein. But you know what? Mm, didn't love it. So Andy is going to give you his huge list of reviews.
1: Oh, and this is going to be some list. And so with Lee away, it gives me free reign to go through as many reviews as I can get through in the short space of time that we've got left of the show and I've seen a wealth of films this week so let's get the ball rolling first up we've got pig I'm looking for a truffle pig someone stole her. I don't understand tell me you are you made the right choice being out there in the woods there's nothing here for you anymore there's
0: really nothing here for most of us buy yourself a new pig
1: now in pig nicholas cage yes that nicholas cage plays rob feld a former chef who's become a reclusive truffle farmer hunting for truffles with his prized foraging pig however one night he's assaulted in his cabin and his pig is stolen and he sets off with the help of his buyer, Amir, played by Alex Wolfe, to get his pig back. This task sees him return to his old grounds, where his name meant something, and he works through the underworld of a crime to get his pig back. Now, from that synopsis, you'd be forgiven for expecting a John Wick-esque style of film. And given Nick Cage's usual propensity for over-the-top theatrics, it would kind of make sense. However, what the film delivers instead... Is something that defies all expectations, and it doesn't play how you initially think. It's more an examination of love and loss. The journey may take you, the audience, into familiar environments, but takes the very unexpected approach to each of the moments. Much like John Wick, Rob Feld wants to put his past behind him and live a simple life, but their approaches to their journeys are something entirely different. Cage himself, usually very over-the-top, as mentioned, is unusually reserved throughout and shows a level of dramatic acting and emotion that we've kind of forgotten that he's capable of. He may be the joke to many these days who sneer at the plethora of films that arrive each year with his name on them, but in this film, he reminds us of the great actor that he can be. Whilst at times, the story risks a stumble Cage deftly keeps your attention focused and carries the plot through even the shakiest of moments. This is a treat of a film for those who want something different, something unexpected and something a little more intimate and engaging than your usual revenge thrillers. On the big screen this week is Reminiscence.
0: You're going on a journey through memory. All you have to do is follow my voice. Nothing is more addictive than the past. People don't just vanish. How much did you really know her? You think you are Nancy's? You don't.
1: Where is she? A sci fi neo noir from Lisa Joy, who gave us the TV series Westworld. However, it is quite clear after watching it, that this is the Lisa Joy who gave us season three of Westworld and not the Lisa Joy who gave us the ever-excellent season one. Hugh Jackman, Tandy Newton and Rebecca Ferguson feature in this tale, which is set in the not-too-distant future, in a world where the sea levels have risen due to global warming and the harsh sunlight of the day means that people now conduct all their normal activities overnight instead. A private investigator in this world named Nick Who is played by Hugh Jackman uses an advanced technology to tap into the memories of clients and uncover clues. But when May, Rebecca Ferguson, enters his office with the simple job of finding where she mislaid her keys, it sparks an obsession that draws Nick down into a dark conspiratorial underworld. Now, the film attempts a detective noir style of film akin to the classics of the mid 20th century but with a sci-fi twist and it's ambitious and it does use the tropes of the genre. Well, the voiceover, the slow pacing, the evocative clothes, the visual style is slick and atmospheric, and you cannot floor the production design. However, the story itself is unengaging. Yes, it riffs on the ideas that we've seen done before, but they've been done so much better before. The clever aspect of sci-fi memory, doesn't really offer anything new to the tale, and the characters are all stereotypes of the detective genre. Indeed, the setting of the near future is superfluous to anything that's actually going on. This could have quite easily been set in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, that era of film noir, without changing anything in the the actual film. At a little under two hours, the film more than outstays its welcome, And the whole tale would have made for an intriguing short film or an episode of a Black Mirror style of anthology show. Indeed, when Nick puts people into sleep for their memories extraction, he uses a Twilight Zone inspired introduction words to lull them into their trances, which only served to make me go, "Eh, this would have made a good Twilight Zone episode. Sadly flat and ultimately disappointing, despite the star presence and the skilled hand crafting it, This is a film with memory retrieval as a focus point that is quite ironically one that I will barely remember in future and have no desire to revisit the memory of. Now, on the big screens this week, but it might not be there for much longer given how it's performed, is Snake Eyes G.I. Joe Origins.
0: Every warrior has a beginning. I need warriors like you. What do I have to do? Join us. The journey from here is yours to decide. But that is just the beginning. Snake dies
1: Now, I need to kick off by making clear that I was never really a fan of G.I. Joe. Either the toys, the cartoons, the comics, or the recent attempts to make it a franchise of films. The toys, when I was young, were generally thought of as the soldiers that your mum accidentally bought for you when the shop ran out of Transformers, Turtles or mask figures. You know, kind of like GoBots were. Whether that was different in the US, I've got no idea. However, I do know that they never really caught on so much over here in the UK, even under the rebranded name of Action Force. I still remember when they crossed over into the Transformers comics. That's a handful of issues that I absolutely hated as a result of these silly soldiers who got in the way of my fun with Mecca. The films that we've seen so far have been decidedly average and I've never felt any need to revisit them. I've said before that even bad films, I tend to go back and reevaluate, but the Joe films weren't bad. They were just so plain and average that there's no need for me to re-explore them because they delivered exactly what they delivered. All that said, I began watching this latest attempt, hoping that it would give me a reason to care and hopefully sparking some life into the franchise with an origin tale about one of the popular characters in the series, the fan favourite, the black clad ninja Snake Eyes. His backstory shrouded in mystery throughout the cartoon, comic and other materials over the years. This film had a chance to explore some intrigue and maybe show why he keeps his face covered. In the old lore, it was apparently due to disfigurement on an early mission that we never saw. It would also, due to the nature of the backstory, be a chance for some cool martial arts fights, surely. Orphaned when his father is killed by an agent of Cobra, the young boy who keeps his identity secret behind the name Snake Eyes grows to be a fierce martial artist and swears to bring vengeance on those who killed his family. He joins a ninja clan with intention to betray them and steal a mystic gem for the Baroness and Cobra in order for his father's killer to be handed over. But he starts to doubt the path he took in this extremely formulaic and bland tale that does absolutely nothing new. There is, however, as expected, plenty of action. Maybe too much action. From martial arts fights to gunplay to high-speed chases to mystic fire-wielding, barely five minutes goes by without some form of action sequence. And sadly, it's all so flatly directed and edited so poorly that there's no thrill. And it all becomes so gratingly dull as a result. I ended up kind of blanking out whilst another action moment played out with no real consequence to the story until it got to the inevitable plot exposition in between. And trust me, this is a film which in between action drops in such terrible dialogue exposition to move it to the next action moment as quick as possible. One of the biggest problems that the action has, and this is a problem that many prequels have, including films such as Solo, is that there's no peril to the characters. We know which characters are going to live to the end of it because... We've already seen the fi- the film set afterwards. And throughout this, every fight scene is like, well, you're not going to die. You're not going to get injured. You're not going to die. You're not going to get injured because all of them are destined to survive. The biggest shame in all of this film is that in amongst the names of cast members that I really don't care about is Samara Weaving, whose recent recent offerings in recent years have been an absolute pleasure. And her great rise to prominence has now been bogged down by this pointless role in this film that risks dumping her back down just as her star is on the rise. It's a two-hour origin film that finishes with an attempt to tease future films because that pays off so well every time that films do that, doesn't it? And which also does a solo and feels that we need some cunning reason for his name. His father's killer, in this instance, uses loaded dice to give people a chance to live or die, and the dice roll as Snake Eyes. So he chose to name himself after something that caused a family member to die, which is normal, I guess. I mean, this would make sense if his father's killer was called Snake Eyes. But no, it it makes no sense at all. Maybe it's now time to accept that G.I. Joe will never be a big screen franchise. It's performed poorly in the US and already gone to streaming and it's not been doing well in the UK so far. No matter how much producer Lorenzo Di Bonaventura loved the toys as a kid, they're just not that relevant to audiences today. And it's about time that he just hung up his obsession with them. If you really want to suffer it, G.I. Joe, Snake Eyes should be showing at cinemas near you right now. Now, censor. Censor is a film set in 1985, during the peak of the video nasty era of VHS, when the media was pointing fingers at the home video as factors in brutal killings and general crime rates. The media at the time ignored unemployment and struggles of the decade. They've got to have a scape- scapegoat. These days, the scapegoat is video games. This depiction is dangerous. Come on, ain't it?
0: I'm cutting it. Butchering, sadism, murder.
1: A wave of depraved and corrupt.
0: Horror video. Confusing fiction with reality. Doug Smart, producer, I Dent Investment Films. Maybe Enid could watch my latest Frederick North submission. Wanted a woman's eye on this film. There's this actress. I've got this feeling that's Nina.
1: My sister. Enid, played by Neve Algar, works within the BBFC as an assessor and censor, spending day after day watching violent torture and killings for classification and editing. However, when she watches one submission that echoes elements of her sister's disappearance, she seeks to find that film's director and find out whether the similarities are a coincidence or something much more sinister, as reality and fiction begin to blur for Enid in terrible ways. Censor emulates the era that it's set in and even the film techniques used at the time are used within this film which makes it an uneasy watch but for all the right reasons. It's very subdued but with occasional glimpses of shockingly graphic violence. The film is less a full-on horror and more a psycho study of the character of Enid. Algar is magnificent in the lead role, very unassumingly serious. Her descent into darkness is made all the more chilling as we see her lose herself into her blurred memories of the past. Support cast comes from a variety of faces that you'll recognise from TV and maybe backgrounds of films, even if you can't quite place them, including the ever great Michael Smiley as film producer Doug Smart. Censor explores the debate of whether watching violent content actually makes for violent people in what, on initial viewing, appears to suggest that maybe it does. But then, as you're left thinking about the film, you realise the subtle nuance in the manner that it played, and it convinced you, as the press and media did back then, that it was the case that watching violent content would make violence. But it's not really the case. No, there's layers to this film that make it an intriguing psycho play for those who have a passion for the industry. And it also works well playing well for the general viewer who just wants a simple old school horror over on netflix this week sweet girl landed which is an action revenge thriller with jason momoa and isabella merced
0: my wife was supposed to start new medication
1: the company that makes a drug pulled it off the market paying competitors to shell generic brands of drugs that is immoral our next caller is from pittsburgh
0: if my wife dies it's your death sentence. I can help you get justice for what happened to your wife. Who's that? Local family gets ravaged by Big Pharma's greed. We could blow this thing wide open. Dad!
1: Momoa plays Ray, a husband whose wife falls ill with cancer. And when he discovers that a potentially life-saving drug was pulled from the market, he threatens to get revenge if the drug isn't made available again and if his wife dies. Six months after his wife passes away, Ray is contacted by a reporter who has some information regarding corruption around the instance of the drug being taken from the market. But a hitman also arrives on the scene to stop the news getting out. Ray must seek revenge, uncover a conspiracy, all the while protecting his only remaining family, his daughter, Rachel. Cliche riddled and not as clever as it thinks it is with a plot twist in the final act. Momoa still gives his all and is still a pleasure to watch. And Isabella Merced, as Rachel, stands out fantastically. But the film itself is bogged down with dumb plotting and action that is very generic. What could have been something more emotion fueled and heartfelt ends up being just another very plain and average action piece from the Netflix library. It's passable viewing, it's worth checking out for the performances alone, but it's another example of how Netflix films maybe need someone there to edit them down a bit and take 10-15 minutes and pace them a bit better, because it does take far too long to tell the simple story. Have I got time for a few more little reviews? Yeah, why not? So first of all, we've got Extinct. Now this landed on Sky Movies this week, and I had very little expectations from the animated offering. It's about one hour 20. It popped up on there. I thought, oh, if it's gone on there as a Sky original, this can't be good, surely. But anyway, Extinct sees a pair of fluffy, donut-esque flummels named Op and Ed, kind of outsiders to the community of flummels who live on an island in the Galapagos in 1835. They accidentally get transported through time to the present day, where they discover a laboratory where survivors of extinctions reside. And they also discover that their own species suffered an extinction fate not long after they left. With the help of Clarence, an adorable little dog, they set off to find a way to save their population from extinction. Now, like I said, I had little expectations, but within the opening minutes, I found myself chuckling because it had quite a good slapstick approach in the opening sections. And I'm a huge fan of slapstick humor. I've always been a fan of slapstick humor. Yes, it's simple. Yes, it's a bit moronic at times, but aren't we all? Then, as the film progressed, I found joy in the time travel shenanigans. There's somewhat, sometimes subtle humour that was layered in there, and the sometimes blatantly over-the-top but really silly humour, along with the warmth of the characters themselves that drew me into the plight as they tried to save their population. At a runtime of around 1 hour 20, it does start to struggle, sadly, in the last 15 minutes, as it becomes a generic, frenzied fight to survive but that aside it was a fun diversion and it makes for a great family treat could it be that sky have actually picked up quite a few decent originals recently when will they fall back to their usual rot well that could be answered straight away with run hide fight now run hide fight concept wise a high school student finds herself trapped in the middle of a high school shooting incident as a bunch of fellow students strike back against the system the film sounds like it could be hard-hitting, offering social commentary on the tragic events that play out all too frequently in the US. However, what it delivers is something entirely abhorrent in the schlock approach it takes, and in the hammered-home political message of the film, by which it's not the message that you think it should be, it's a right-wing, gun-friendly stance, pointing out that guns aren't the issue, people are. The Attackers are either liberal anti-fascists, they state clearly that they aren't Nazis and with mumbled rhetoric about their reasons, or the mentally unstable, one character hears voices in his head and refers to fellow students and people as objects or they or those things, or the loners of society, you know, the stereotypes that the right-wing media parades out after each shooting to discredit the idea that gun control is an issue. Throw in inept teachers, an attempt to show how pathetic the lockdown rules in schools whenever such an incident takes place, that it doesn't actually protect anyone who puts them all at more at risk, and a school security guard who panics and wets themselves rather than do anything with a heavy suggestion that if he had guns and they were all trained, the teachers and the staff, this could all be avoided. It takes trained hunters with guns to stop the tragedy escalating, Isabel May as Zoe and Thomas Jane as her father Todd, because guns are good, yeah? It's the people who are bad, but... What do you expect from a film that has The Daily Wire and Ben Shapiro behind the scenes? This is a tragically awful film that tries to make die-hard style entertainment from a modern day series of tragedies. Abhorrent doesn't even really begin to describe this. Sky are showing this at the moment. I urge you to not watch it. It is utter, utterly distasteful garbage. And finally, yes, Finally, after that huge run of film releases, we have Beckett. Now, this landed about two weeks ago on Netflix, but I didn't get round to watching it until this past weekend. John David Washington as Beckett is a tourist in Greece, but when he crashes the car carrying himself and his girlfriend April, bursting off-road into an allegedly abandoned farmhouse, it sets off a chain of events that see him on the run for his life, whilst the conspiracy that threatens to undermine Greece itself plays out around him. The film is simple in premise and smartly avoids being a full-on action thriller, but plays more as a man on the run for his life. A fugitive aspect, you could say. And despite a sudden swing in the last act to generic territory, it kind of works. Washington certainly helps the film, and he makes even moments that would be trite and cliché feel natural and threatening. It's a definite case of the star making the film more than what it otherwise would be. There's some interesting creative choices to add to the confused tension. The choice to not offer subtitles when characters speak foreign languages means that we, the audience, are struggling to understand things as much as Beckett is, and we don't know who he can trust either because as they start talking to each other in their native languages, we can't follow them, and neither can he, so we can understand how he's unnerved by the whole situation. Beckett doesn't outstay its welcome, even if it doesn't really offer anything new. Strong central performance definitely helps carry this thrill along for a satisfying watch.
0: So, as you know, we are covering all things MCU, and of course, last week, we saw the first episode of Marvel's latest animator series, What If? Let's talk about episode two. You know the stories, but what if one thing
1: changed everything? You sure don't seem too freaked out about all this, kid. Charlo. Give me the door. Where you want to be?
0: That's the question, isn't it? Starla! We have you out the bird. You had me worried for a second. Exploring the world. Sounds fun. Expect the unexpected. What if
1: This week, after last week's one, which basically echoed events of Captain America, the first Avenger, but did it with Captain Carter having the power instead. This week's episode did something completely different. We saw T'Challa as a young boy being taken instead of Peter Quill and how that changed everything. And it played so well and so comically and also created a great heist movie episode. It's such a solid episode. Who'd have thought, for example, that all that Thanos needed was someone like T'Challa to sit down and explain the flaws in his plan and realise that he could be better served if he didn't go for his complete genocide well, half-genocide half approach and instead focused on trying to help people in a different way and he'd become the good guy. As an effect of this, The Collector, who we saw glimpsed in the film series, is now collecting all of the Infinity Stones and becomes the threat to the universe. And so it sparks a heist movie as they try to retrieve items from the collector to stop him gaining ultimate power. A final tribute message at the end of this episode to Chadwick Boseman hit the heart and the episode serves as a fine remembrance of the actor that we lost far too early. This was a great example of what a what-if can actually do and how the ripple effect can change so much with just one minor change. I'm thoroughly enjoying the episodic nature of the what-ifs. They remind me so much of the comic books and I'm looking forward to seeing the next eight episodes. So coming this week at cinemas, there's Our Ladies. Our Ladies follows a group of Scottish schoolgirls on a day trip to Edinburgh to perform in a choir competition. For the teens from a small town in the Scottish Highlands, it becomes a chance to escape their daily mundane lives and run riot in the big city. And also, near da Costa's Candyman is out this week for those who love a nice bit of scary horror. Say his name five times into a mirror and the Candyman with his hook hand and swarms of bees will come and take your life. And so the urban legend is, is explored in this reboot reimagining is it a sequel is it not of the old clive barker inspired series of films on streaming this week now tv and sky there's a chance to catch wonder woman 84 i enjoyed it lee not so much but it's well worth checking out for vibrant visuals and more superhero action more in tone with your old school superman than with your modern day man of steel Tom and Jerry also lands this week, one definitely for the younger audience. Adults will find very, very little to actually appreciate within this film. And also Dreamland, which sees Finn Cole and Margot Robbie in a film about a guy who dreams of escaping his small Texas town when he runs into a wounded bank robber played by Margot Robbie. Torn between claiming the bounty on her and his attraction to her, he must make a decision that will impact the lives of everyone he's loved. Over on Amazon, there's more heists going on with Freddie Highmore and Famke Janssen in The Vault, and of course, over on Disney Plus, tune into What If this week because
0: why not? And that's about it for this week, folks. But before we go, we do this every week. Let's talk about our neat things, which is to say things that we've watched, played, ate, enjoyed. You name it; it's our neat thing. Andy, as tradition goes, has to go first.
1: <laughs> Which means I get to steal your thunder and steal your neat thing. I, mean,
0: I know we were talking about what our neat thing is this week and we both had the same neat thing. But Andy, I'm, I'm going to be the gentleman. I'm going to stand back. I'm going to let you steal. No take, no borrow. My neat thing as well.
1: So I've mentioned previously on the show how much of a huge Fantastic Four fan I am. I mean, I'm not talking about the films because the films to date have been middling or bad. I'm talking about the comic book. It was the first Marvel comic that I was introduced to at an early age. My mum bought me one of the British reprints of the first few issues and I adored it from that point onwards. They are my my go-to comic book that I've stuck with ever since I was like five years old, right the way through until modern day. And in recent years. It's been up and down. I mean, cause it, it, they went by the wilderness for a while, but then they came back with Dan slot at the helm. Now Dan slot and me have a history. You've not
0: always been friends. Have you?
1: No, uh, I, I, I didn't like what he did with Spider-Man. I don't feel he got a handle on the character. He tried to be too different and change the characters aspects too much. He turned him at one point into a junior Iron Man, which clearly influenced the modern films, which I'm getting a bit, bit tired of. Um, so I was worried when he'd go back, to, when he'd take over the Fantastic Four. After all, Dan Slott is the guy who blocked me on Twitter because I dared to comment that his run on Superior Spider-Man wasn't for me. He was that ridiculous that he blocked me for just simply making a comment. So it was with hesitation that I started reading his run. And I loved it. It was clear that he has the love for the characters that I had. It's clear that he remembers the era that I remember. And as his run's been going on, I've fallen more and more in love with it. Now, I'm three months behind because I'm reading it through Marvel Unlimited. And all I've got to say is that all the intrigue that he's adding on is just really, really gripping me. I can't wait for the next issue to land because we've seen visions of the future where we find that Ben Grimm beats Reed Richards to death because Reed did something that was unforgivable. And all the mystery of what could separate this family, this friendship, and split them apart in such a way. And the characters themselves in denial that this could ever take place. But all the time, there's the worry that like something could lead this way. I feel that I'm starting to see the start of where these events are going to come from, playing out in the background at the moment. But i am he's layering so many different things in. And the Fantastic Four has gone from being... About five years ago, it was okay when Straczynski was writing it, but I don't think he quite tapped into the characters. Slot has tapped it into the perfect cosmic silliness, craziness, but family aspect that the Fantastic Four always should be. Plus, the Baxter building is back. Thank you. The Baxter building is back. You can't have Fantastic Four without the Baxter building, as far as I'm concerned. If you've not read the Fantastic Four in recent years, jump on it. Either subscribe to Marvel Unlimited, and give yourself a free reign of everything that Marvel ever wrote, or just go and collect all of Dan Slott's run in the graphic novels. They are well and truly worth exploring.
0: I was about to agree with you, Andy. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed this run of the Fantastic Four. I intermittently have collected it, depending on the creative team is. Now, the Mark Wade run was good, Mm. um, but this one does exactly what that did to, to, to the highest degree, which is make them a family again. And as a family, that's what you enjoy. It's It's got a lot of humour that the Fantastic Four should have. I don't think it should be a dour book, the Fantastic yeah. Four. It's colourful. Um, it, it's 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 a family drama. It's a science fiction book. It's an adventure book. It just hits all the right beats. And the, the last couple of issues with Doctor Doom's wedding has been really, really fun. And my neat thing for this week is staying in comic territory. Um uh, it's part of dc's digital run and every now and then they've had sort of tie-ins they've had a tie-in to batman 66 which followed the the comic adventures of the adam west batman the new book that they've just released and this also ties into a superman title as well is batman 89 which is a direct sequel to the michael keaton batman and and this is in light of uh, the announcement that Michael Keaton is going to be in the in the Flash movie. So what it does is it imagines what happens after those first two movies as it's written by Sam Hamm, who wrote the script for, for Batman and the first draft of Batman Returns. It feels and looks like Keaton's Batman. It's the same body armour. It, it's, it's Keaton under the mask. It's a real throwback and, and just captures... That Tim Burton vision of what Batman is—the the the gothic nature of 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 Gotham City, uh, in in all its glory—at the moment they are starting with imagining what would have happened if they'd have carried on and Harvey Dent, played by Billy D. Williams, becomes Two Face as opposed to um, who was it? It Tommy Lee Jones. As opposed to the Tommy Lee Jones, which happened. Uh, in in the Val Kilmer version, so they're really well done, and and by having Sam Hamm write the write the, the scripts for them, it feels as though they are absolutely tying in to to the nature of those movies. And I love the first uh, Tim Burton Batman movies, uh, especially Batman Returns. I love the design of, of of Batman. I love the idea that sort of carried on being body armor, uh, and and I always also loved Keaton. As uh, uh, as Bruce Wayne and, and Batman, and it made sense for Batman to have body armor if he was if he was Bruce Wayne. So it all ties in. It's wonderfully done. Great painted cover on the first issue. That is Batman eighty nine, written by Sam Hamm, and penciled by Joe Quinones. Well worth it. And I'll tell you about the Superman seventy eight series as well, which is a reimagining of Superman. With Christopher Reeve still in the main role. Ooh. And that's it for this week. As ever, thank you for joining us. A bit of an odd show this week. We will see you again next week for more Filmfile. Andy, take good care of yourself. And Andy, he would have an enormous Schwachstocker. Well, like I guess without saying.